Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and I'm Amy and thank you for joining us for our latest episode. As part of our focus on Caminos and pilgrimage routes for the holy years of 2021 and 2022, this episode is all about the Via Francigena, a pilgrimage route from Canterbury in England to Rome in Italy. Cicerone is in the process of publishing new guidebooks to the Via Francigena, splitting the route into three volumes. Due to the popularity of the section through Italy, we have published the Via Francigena Part 3, Luca to Rome, first. This will be followed by Part 2, Lausanne to the Great St. Bernard Pass to Luca, which is coming out in the summer. The final volume, Part 1, Canterbury to Lausanne, will follow in the future. This episode features highlights from our live event last summer, hosted by Cicerone's Via Francigena author, Sandy Brown. Focusing on the Italian section of the walk, we were joined by three special guests. Luca Bruschi, Executive Director of the European Association of V. Francigene, Julia Lewis, Secretary of the Confraternity of Pilgrims to Rome, and Beatrice Marici, a photographer and walker who joined us from the Via Francigena itself. Between them, they shared their extensive knowledge, experience and love for this pilgrimage route. Before we hear the highlights from the live event, I had a quick catch-up with Sandy about his new guidebooks to the Via Francigena. Sandy is an ordained minister, community activist and long-distance walker from Seattle, Washington. He is the author of Cicerone's new guidebooks to the Via Francigena and author of Cicerone's guidebook to the Way of St Francis, which is another pilgrimage route through Italy, and Cicerone's guidebook to the Camino Frances in Spain. Hi, Sandy. Hi. Congratulations on the publication of the Via Francigena Part 3. And I know you've just signed off on the proofs for Part 2 as well. It's such a huge project, isn't it? So how does it feel now you've finished two of the three? It's very exciting. And it feels to me like there's a lot of demand for Cicerone's new guidebooks in this area. Of course, we did a guidebook series for the Via Francigena about 10 years ago. And that was one of the major resources for people. And now these new volumes put us right back in the mix. Also, their official volumes approved by the European Association of Via Francigene. So that's very exciting. And as soon as people are out there and walking, I think they're going to really come to appreciate what these guidebooks have. And I know that the original series was just split into two parts, wasn't it? Whereas this is into three. What was the reason for that? Well, first of all, it's a very long journey of 2,200 kilometers altogether. And it's funny when they're split into two volumes, it seems like the logical place to split them would be in the middle, which is about the Great St. Bernard Pass. But to experience the Great St. Bernard Pass, it's better to start on the northern side of it. And so starting at Lausanne is really a great experience. And it felt to me like if our second guidebook began at Great St. Bernard Pass, everybody that bought it would miss the great climb of the pass, which is at least half the fun. So I proposed and Cicerone accepted that we would instead begin at Lausanne. And so that made it a little bit lopsided and it became clear it was going to be best to divide them up into three rather than in two. The other thing is that the first section between Canterbury and Lausanne is really quite a bit different. There's less pilgrim infrastructure. It's a little more complicated to describe and fewer pilgrims take that route. 
So it just seemed right that we could split that off as well. And one final reason is that the last stretch, which is Luca to Rome, is really the most traveled of all the Via Francigena. So why not give the person that's going to walk that stretch their own guidebook that can accompany them and lead them during that time? And you said that the first part feels very different to the later two, but do all of them feel quite different? I mean, part two and three are coming out at a similar time. And I wondered, obviously, part two travels through France mostly and part three is through mostly Italy. But other than just being in different countries, do they feel like quite different pilgrimages? I think so. Of course, even Italy, we go through, I believe, seven different regions in Italy, and each of the seven regions has its own flavor. So I guess you technically could argue that everyone deserves its own guidebook, but it does feel more sort of contiguous to have guidebooks that cover a country. So then by starting in Lausanne, there's actually some similarities between the Vaud and Valais cantons in Switzerland and the Val d'Aosta. Some people don't realize that that Italian region, which is semi-autonomous, one of the major two languages is French. So that's actually kind of three regions that are French-speaking. So those are all different. You could say all the regions are different. France is different in part because of the reduction in infrastructure. So, for instance, a person walking from Canterbury to Lausanne, they might be well advised to bring along a tent and a sleeping bag because in some stretches there's not a hotel. And in many cases, most cases, there's not a hostel, which is completely different when you get into Switzerland and Italy. So some people, when they come on the French part, they use their tents and sleeping bag. Then they get to Italy and they send those back home. That's how it's different in the widest kind of sense. Do you think, I suppose, the the Canterbury to Lausanne bit is probably different because there's less infrastructure, as you've said. But do you think the Via Francigena is suitable for first-time pilgrim walkers? I think parts of it are. And I was just talking to a prospective Francigena pilgrim and was telling her that the Alps are the best part of the Francigena, at least that I've seen, because the climb up to the Great St. Bernard Pass is so wonderful. And she said, well, I'm 68 years old. I don't consider myself a mountain climber. I said, let me tell you that I think anybody that's a good walker could do that climb up to the pass and then the climb back down as well. I don't consider it an advanced hike or you certainly don't need to have specialized gear to be able to do it. And I encouraged her to give it a try. The most important thing is because the pass is at approximately 3,500 meters in elevation. That means that for most of the year, it's covered in snow. So you have to time your crossing. And in the first week of June, they clear off the asphalt road up to the pass. But before then, you can't even walk the asphalt road. And then about the 1st of August, depending on the weather that year, because they usually get about eight meters of snow at the top of the pass, about the 1st of August to the end of September, the pathway is open. So the best experience of taking the walk is actually in August and September, because you can walk up the path and not have to worry about having snowshoes or something like that. 
So timing is an important piece of it. But once it's clear of snow, there's nothing technical about the climb. And person in uh, hiking shape who is fairly physically fit can make that walk with a pair of trail runners and their backpack and maybe some walking poles uh, for stability. So obviously you've done guidebooks to other pilgrimage routes in Europe, uh, so mm-hmm. the Camino Frances, the Way of St. Francis, and then the Via Francigena, these volumes. But what do you think makes this pilgrimage special or makes it different to the other pilgrimages in Europe? First of all, the Francigena is based on an historical itinerary. It's not set up thematically to show certain things. It's strung out on the exact, or as close as we can do in the modern world, uh, exact itinerary of Archbishop Sisseric. And so it's an itinerary that's a thousand years old. And even today, you can see its medieval roots. You know, you walk through a town and the road is straight north-south because it's connecting the Alps to Rome. That's the way the town has been laid out for over a thousand years. So that's extremely interesting. The sites along the way are interesting. You know, geographically in Italy, you have the Alps, then you have the Apennine Mountains, you have the Po River Valley, which is agricultural. And then you have Tuscany, which is rolling farmland and wine and uh, gastronomic pleasures. And then you have Lazio, which is a buildup to Rome. And Lazio is a volcanic region of little sort of ravines and then lakes that are craters from extinct volcanoes. And there you have hazelnut trees as well as vineyards. And, of course, you get to Rome. And in my opinion, Rome is one of the great pilgrim destinations of the world. In the Middle Ages, the top three were Jerusalem, Rome, and Santiago. Rome is 1,500 years older than Santiago and on the edge of the same age as Jerusalem. So you're entering an ancient place where there's so much to learn and see and absorb. And I don't want to discredit Santiago. That's an important pilgrimage destination. But they were already making pilgrimage to Rome for 800 or so years when Santiago went on the map as a pilgrimage destination. I prefer to suggest that you begin with the Camino Frances. And when you finish that, you look out for another Camino and that your choices should include the Via Francigena because it's such a great route and it has very strong pilgrim infrastructure in the Italian section. It really makes it worth walking. It's been a while since you've been allowed to go to Europe as an American in this pandemic and you are looking to go and do the Canterbury to Lausanne section. But what is it that you miss most about maybe the Via Francigena or just European pilgrimages in general? Yeah, (laughs) I'll tell you, I consider it a real joy to engage my mind in communicating in French and in Italian. I had five years of French in high school. I studied Italian and then lived on and off in Italy over the last half dozen years. And I love engaging my mind in the work of communicating. 
but I also like the inner cities of these villages and towns and cities where the cars are pushed aside and not allowed to enter and where you have a pedestrian focused urban area where you can comfortably sit at a cafe and not have to think about the noise of cars whizzing by. And in the afternoon, you can have a cup of whatever it is or a glass of whatever it is and enjoy the setting as you're sitting there in the sun, maybe munching on uh, a little appetizer and thinking about what your dinner plans are going to be and watching people who are other pilgrims who are wandering through the town as well. And then building relationships with them, too. And it's really, I think, about discovery. It's discovery of your fellow pilgrims, discovery of the area that you find yourself in. And then there's also the self-discovery that comes from challenging yourself on a daily routine of walking, taking care of yourself, but and also watching your body and your spirit begin to transform as you let go of your cares. You begin to think about other things. You work through issues. You make decisions. And you celebrate with other pilgrims. I can't get enough of it. And I've done a pilgrimage every year for the last dozen years. And uh, in fact, I just have to tell you this. I'm walking right now in California. And I passed a street near one of the missions in California called Pilgrim Loop. And I thought, that's exactly where I am. I'm on Pilgrim Loop. And I have been for the last 12 years. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, well, thank you, Sandy, for taking time out of your latest walking trip. I'm glad you've been able to actually get away and go somewhere, even if it's not, you know, going to Europe to do yeah. a pilgrimage there. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Amy. If you're feeling inspired about the Via Francigena and want to discover this pilgrimage route for yourself, head on over to the Cicerone website where you can order the guidebooks to part two and three of the Via Francigena. For 25% off either or both guidebooks, use the discount code ROME25. That's ROME with a capital R, lowercase O-M-E, and then 25 as numbers, ROME25. We hope that you're inspired by the Via Francigena and enjoy exploring it yourself. Well, I'm so excited to be able to share with you one of my favorite pilgrim walks in all of the world. It's the Via Francigena. So our panel first with us is Luca Bruschi, who is the director of the European Association of Via Francigena. And Luca is headquartered in Fidenza, Italy, which is right on the trail with his team who oversee this epic pilgrimage walk. After Luca, we'll have Julia Lewis with us. Julia is a board member of the Confraternity of Pilgrims to Rome. And Julia is somebody I had the opportunity to meet in Canterbury. I think it was just last year. And she's been so helpful to me as I've gone through the writing process and the research on accommodations on the Via Francigena. She made her walk in 2015 and keeps up to date on the walk through her work with the confraternity. And then we're also delighted to have with us Beatrice Morici, who is Italian, lives in Tuscany near Florence. I met her last year on the Via Francigena. And I heard this year that she's walking the entire route in Italy, all the way from Great St. Bernard Pass down to Rome, and then from Rome on to Santa Maria di Luca in the Via Francigena del Sud. 
And Beatrice is joining us from San Quirico Dorcia, which is one of the wonderful Via Francigena towns. So, Luca, I invite you to come on board, let everybody meet you, and then get us started in this work of hearing about the Via Francigena. Okay, thank you, Sandy, and thank you, Cicerone. First of all, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's better maybe to start talking about the history of the, of the Via Francigena. Uh, in 990 AD, the Archbishop of Canterbury traveled to Rome to meet Pope John XV. Along the route, he recorded the 79 stages of the trip in his uh, succinct diary that now you can find in the British Library in London, UK. And thanks to this document, the shortest route between Canterbury and Rome can be retraced and is now accessible to all travelers 2,200 kilometers from Canterbury to, to Rome, crossing 13 regions. About the European values and the traveling today, we can we can say that the Via Francigena was a path of communication which contributed to the cultural unity of Europe in the Middle Age. And now the Via Francigena is considered a, a bridge between the cultures of Anglo-Saxon Europe and Latin and Mediterranean Europe. This pilgrimage is also a metaphor for rediscovery of European roots, building understanding of the different cultures that form our common identity. This is the Italian path from Valle d'Osta to Rome, 1,000 kilometers more or less. Uh, traveling on the Via Francigena, we, uh, today we realize that the road has influenced the fabric of the villages along the way. Archaeological site and religious building populate the Via Francigena, and most importantly, Many of the masterpieces of Romanesque architecture stand beside the road, which illustrates its importance on the religious and artistic development. This is the famous pilgrim passport that pilgrims use during the pilgrimage in order to receive the final testimonial at the end of the walking trip. You can say the Via Francigena is one of the most beautiful and fascinating walking trips in Italy. This medieval route crosses seven Italian regions, Valle d'Osta, Piedmont, Lombardia, Emilia-Romagna, and Liguria, Tuscany, for 100 kilometers, and Lazio. The main Italian trail starts in the Western Alps, then crosses the Po Valley, and it's through Tuscany for 400 kilometers, and into Lazio, where pilgrims walk for the last 130 kilometers before arriving in Rome at St. Peter's Square, and tourism testimony. We can also site of the Via Francigena. We can consider 45 days on foot and 21, 22 days by bicycle. And I really want to give you some uh, almost relevant Via Francigena highlights. Um, the Via Francigena becomes increasingly international, hosting hikers from over 60 countries. Italian workers dominate the route, followed by visitors from France, Germany, and Switzerland. Hikers from the United States of America and Canada are top visitors from the American continents. Normally, 80% of the 80% of pilgrims are traveling on foot, and 20% by bicycle, and 0.3% on horse. This is a minority for now. And the most popular departure points are Lucca, Siena, Fidenza, Pavia in Italy, Grand San Bernardo Pass, and Lausanne in Switzerland, and of course Canterbury in, uh, in England, kilometer zero of the path. 
the Via Francigena embraces hikers of all ages, from 16 to 80 years old. The 25, 34 age group is ever growing. And finally, just a few words about the European Association of the Via Francigena, that I'm the director, and that is a dynamic association in charge to develop the Via Francigena at international level. The Via Francigena Association, the Via Francigena was certified by the Council of Europe for fostering and enhancing the historic journey made by Archbishop of Shigeri. It's an association bottom-up approach in order to involve local, regional, and national stakeholders the mission of the association is also to create a network that can help the connection between the main pilgrimage at international level, like the Santiago de Compostela, in order to foster our intercultural and also our interregional, interreligious dialogue. Um, we can say that our activity is mostly based on five main pillars. The first one is institution. Try to involve the institution, try to get the institution more involved. We try to convince every day mayor, councillor, towns and regions to, to join the association, to invest money, especially time, energy, to reinforce the, the Via Francigena, especially for path, sign postings, accommodation and promotion. The second pillar are the local communities, because I can say there are 630 municipalities, especially small villages along the way. And the third pillar is the no-profit association, like the Confraternity Pilgrim to Rome, this is essential, this is vital, the role played by the local association, the volunteers along the way to animate the route. Also the university, this is an international network university for support to the Via Francigena. And finally, the last but not least, is the small middle enterprises, restaurants, accommodations, hotels, uh, and many other more services along the, along the path. In the last few years, we reached many important results the European Common Standards of signpostings and uh, accommodation, the complete route information on the, on the website, uh, the official app. Uh, we are working on some European projects for support international cooperation. We are working, an important project underway is the UNESCO candidate, the candidate via Francia, the UNESCO World Heritage. It's an ambition and very long project, but is yeah, the cooperation with, between England, France, Italy, and Switzerland is underway. And finally, one of the most important projects underway is the cooperation and the agreement with Cicerone for the English guide for, for the entire route from Canterbury to, to Rome. Well, let's go ahead to Julia now. Julia, just go right ahead and chime in. Hello, everyone. I'm from Canterbury, so very near to kilometer zero of the Via Francigena. I walked in 2015 from Canterbury to Rome. And just to start off, I'm obviously still involved in the Francigena because I had such an incredible experience and I really enjoy talking about it. And I think we all need to say thank you to Luca and the rest of the European Association for all of their incredible hard work, which has developed the Francigena over the last two decades, really, which is allowing pilgrims like me and Beatrice to experience that and have these wonderful memories. I sometimes look back on my experience with a little bit of a rose-tinted perspective, but I'm going to try today to explain some of the challenges. What did I expect to find in Italy and what was the reality? 
I started off from Canterbury in 2015 in March, um, so I set off quite early. And what that meant is when I arrived at the Great St. Bernard Pass, it was actually too early to cross. Uh, I was very determined to do it, but I was told that there were currently avalanches. So I had no choice after five weeks of walking but to get on a bus and skip two stages. And I got plonked off in Aosta, in Val d'Osta in Italy. So having been quite isolated for quite some time in my own thoughts, you know, but walking every day, I was suddenly in the centre of a quite a busy um, city in Italy. So language change, environment change. So my first reaction was a little bit of shock to be there, but also very, very pleased to be in Italy, a country that I love and know well, and had had five weeks of looking forward to. I was thinking ahead to Italy with a few expectations. So the first one was the expectation that that the physical challenge would be less in Italy. First, because I'd already been walking for five weeks. So even though I'd set off for Canterbury with a very heavy rucksack, by the time I reached Italy, it felt perfectly normal to wear it. I was really accustomed to it. I was in quite good shape at that point. The other expectation was that because the Alps, in my mind, seemed like the big challenge. Once I got over the Alps, it it kind of felt like it was going to be all downhill to Rome, which, yeah, wasn't exactly true. The first impression I had when I started on the route, one, it it was very easy to find the route. I immediately started to find these stickers. And this was, we have to think that it was 2015 I walked. So a lot has changed um, on the route from Canterbury to Rome in that time. And in France, signage was not very obvious. So suddenly finding, you know, just a sticker like this, it made me feel like, one, that I'm on a route that is recognised and also that maybe it's going to be a bit easier to navigate. And it certainly was. One lovely thing that happened almost immediately when I got on the route was a man drove by and, um, you know, sort of shouting encouragement at me, you know, one communal, all of this. And I realized that the local people were also aware of the route, which was quite a change because in France and Switzerland, when you did see people, they often didn't, they weren't aware that the route was going through their communities. The red and white official stickers, but also remnants of a history of signage and so these for those who've walked to the Camino will recognize the arrow for Rome it's a white arrow rather than the yellow to Santiago so you really felt like you were on something that was long established so apart from rest areas and signage the accommodation was also excellent so I walked the entire route from Aosta to Rome using only what I'd say pilgrim friendly accommodation sort of budget accommodation but also where there was a sense of welcome people knew that you were a pilgrim and kind of knew what you needed that you would be able to find access to food some of the challenges were the terrain there's a lot of Italy to get through different regions present different kinds of terrain so once you've gone through the Val d'Osto which is quite mountainous um, and where the path takes you up and down along the the mountainside which is challenging all day long then you're suddenly in the flat, but you're in rice fields. I think people, you know, there's sort of mixed responses to the, the week or so that you're in the rice fields of Lombardy. I think I was lucky because I travelled in May, so it wasn't too hot. Um, but again, it's preparation, so an expectation. If you know that you're, you're going to go through this area, you know, to bring a lot of bug spray and sort of just take it in your stride. Don't push yourself. 
So the next area you'll find the Apennines. So I had had a lot of respect for the Alps, but to be honest, the Alps are not that challenging because you take several days to go up them. It's quite gradual. Whereas when you're walking in the Apennines, once you start going, it, it feels quite constant that you're going up and down and you're following the Apennines for much of the route but incredibly beautiful. So these are the Carrara Mountains, which is that famous white marble that you'll find in a lot of ancient ruins in Rome. I think in Italy, you always know that there's going to be a treat at the end. I think I was powered on gelato for much of my trip through Italy. And I think that's what's great about this route through Italy is that you will find Even if it's a village, there'll be a bar. There'll be somewhere to sit down, somewhere cool. You can have a drink, something to eat. And there's always something yummy to power you on if you need it. When I walked La Storta into Rome, I had to go along a very busy road. There wasn't a pavement. It wasn't pleasant. But now I'm told by pilgrims that there's a route through a park. And it's a much more pleasant experience for pilgrims. It just goes to show how much progress is being made and how the experience is just going to get better and better year on year. And of course, arrival. I found arriving in Rome a little bittersweet because it's a beautiful place. You've reached the end of your journey, you're 80 days on the road. But it was so sad to realize that it was over. And I couldn't believe it. And thinking of expectations, when I left, never in a million years would I have thought that I would want to keep going. But now that they're developing the southern route, I could well imagine that pilgrims who intended to stop at Rome might keep going. So I think there's huge potential there. So the, the routes in Italy are not done yet. I think I'll have to go back one day and enjoy some of the hard work of Luca and his colleagues um, and enjoy that route. So I'm going to sign off there. Thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to my stories. And Beatrice, would you like to take over and tell us what it's like in San Quirico Dolce? Hello everyone, I am Beatrice, I am in San Quirico now. I started working on the 24th June, so one month ago. I am on my 28th day. I am very emotional about this because I am inside all the feelings of the work. So because last year I worked for two weeks in Tuscany and Lazio, I got in love with the work with the Via Francigena. So this year I found my summer free and I decided to make my experience wider and start from the uh, Great San Bernard to Santa Maria di Leuca and to do all the work along Italy. I decided to do it in Italy because I wanted to make this experience in my country. I always travel uh, abroad, but I discovered that there's a long walk in my country to discover better my people and my landscapes and my regions. So I wanted to do it here. and. It's a pleasure to walk slowly in all these places and discover a lot of different things. And I think that especially in this moment, walking is a very revolutionary action because of this pandemic divided us from human relationship and from nature and obliged us to stay in our home. And I think that now more than ever, Walking is very revolutionary, so this is more important this year. And it lets us move just by walking slowly between a city, village, and another one. And it lets us have human relationship and find them again, because with this situation, many people are afraid of the human contacts and of the relationships. 
And so this is a good way to show people that we as pilgrims are open to meet other people, meet other human beings. And it's something that can reconnect us to nature because we miss nature a lot. So I think that this could really be the year of the work. And from now on, it will be more and more because this situation, I think that teaches us that we need nature, we need human relationship, and we need slowness. We need to slow down and not to be fast. I'm very emotional about this because I'm still inside all these feelings. Every day it's a new discover. And even if this year, despite last year, I am founding less pilgrims, but even if I work, for example, 14 days alone, but I wasn't alone because I could every day meet people because I want to meet people. I want to know other human beings. So I am open to the other. And sometimes it takes just a buongiorno. It takes just a buonasera. From this travel by walking, I wanted to discover all my country and the binocular and the very high mountains in the Alps at the Great St. Britain at 2,400 meters. And walking down from the Alps, you are never alone because even if you don't meet pilgrims, you meet people like farmer or people that are walking on the, from a village to another. Your travel mates are the mountains and the lake, for example, and the water. I met this woman that was walking from a village to another, and she daily worked in these villages, saying hi to the animals of the farmers. In Diafrancidena, there are a lot of very interesting hospitality, and these are the nuns from the Hermitage in Perlo, and I could spend time with them, know their stories, and they show me their moment of prayer. And one of them, one of the nuns was playing the setra. It is a very ancient instrument, so I could know them very well. And they cook for me, and we spent time together work, uh, talking. I also sell portraits when I walk, because I am alone. But I am never alone, because my shadow is always with me. What's very uh, interesting is that people ask, uh, where are you from? But this question has three different answers, because... Where are you from today? Maybe I come from Ponte d'Arbia, for example, today. Where are you from? From the beginning of your working, I come from the Great San Bernard. Where are you from? Where are your roots? My roots are in Tuscany, in San Giovanni Valdarno, for example. So it's interesting how people want to know everything about you. And it's a very interesting thing how every day, how Francigena is well signed and you don't have to take care of where to go because everywhere there's a sticker or maybe you have a map and it's nice how every destination so every day has a destiny there is a um, opposite meaning but it's a deep meaning because every day in the destination you are going to you meet a destiny so maybe you meet a person you meet a landscape you meet a particular condition of weather and it's something very unique. And I really feel this kind of thing because it's very emotional and it's very personal because it's also something about the law of attraction. So what you like, it's what you attract. And it's something very personal about the work and you never feel alone with, with this. So even if this year there are less pilgrims, but if you believe in these strong feelings, 
you are never alone. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Luca, thank you so much for your overview and thank you for the great work that you've been doing on the Via Francigena these 15 years. It's wonderful to watch how it's been developing and it seems like it grows in strength every year that I've been part of it. And I first walked only in 2016. And Julia, thank you for your presentation. Also, all of the work that you've done to support pilgrims through the Confraternity of Pilgrims to Rome, which is such a great organization. Beatrice, thank you very much for being willing to share your experiences on the walk this time around. And if I could, I would be there with you and walking into Rome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. And thanks to Sandy, Luca, Julia and Beatrice for sharing their experiences of the Via Francigena. You can find out more about the guidebooks to the route on the Cicerone website, along with the full video of the live event and plenty of other guidebooks, articles and videos about pilgrimage routes. You can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or on your favourite podcast provider. Let us know what you think by leaving reviews on your podcast platform or emailing us live at cicerone.co.uk. We'd really love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, search for Cicerone Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can also join our Facebook community, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. You can also check out our Cicerone Camino Facebook page. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you soon.